This episode is sponsored by Winter Victor Studio. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed! They've given it everything on the global bucket! Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic championship. Ready? Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Hello. So to get ready for today's episode, I've been playing some of our favorite Chinese pop songs. Oh. I have. <laughs> Only problem was, was playing the song that we always heard at uh, sled hockey. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly started craving Chinese Snickers bars. <laughs> because that was the only venue that had them. So that song that we always heard now in my brain is the Pavlov's dog bell for Snickers bar. Wow. I'm going to have to start exploring the Asian markets around here just to see if they have any of the, the stuff. I mean, it didn't really taste any different than an American Snickers bar. It just had the Chinese wrapper on it. Right, right, right. I guess I could just go get an American Snickers bar, but it won't be the same. No. Michael (laughs) won't be there. There won't be the the Chinese cheerleaders. There won't be Flag Boy who would just stand there with a flag. So it just just won't be the same. Well, that's nice because we are talking Beijing today, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, we would like to thank our sponsor, Winter Victor Studio. Winter Victor believes sport and beautiful design go hand in hand, and that a designer's versatility is just as important as an athlete's dexterity. Winter Victor provides distinctive graphic design to clients in sport. From logos to digital communications, Winter Victor brings the same passion to design that our clients bring to the field of play. Add a responsive and versatile designer to your team at wintervictor.com. So we're, we're going back to talk to one of our Beijing Shuklastanis, wheelchair curler, Steve Empt. We originally spoke to him in January as we he was preparing for the 2022 Winter Paralympics. And Steve is back to talk about his experiences in Beijing, where Team USA finished fifth in the competition. Take a listen. Steve, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think it's a complicated question when people ask me, how was China? But how was China? China was fantastic. Beautiful, incredible people, incredible venue. The competition was amazing, as always. Minus the little Tyvek suits on the stewardesses and the respirators and the testing and all that. And that's... It is what it is, and that's part of the world we lived in at the time. So, but no, it was it was incredible for me and my team, and we had a real we had a good time. Well, we were there. We watched a lot of curling. Excellent, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, we had a great time. I had a very hard time not cheering because it was it was a very exciting venue. So, how yep. was the venue for you? The venue was fantastic. We were there three months prior for the world championship, so kind of got used to the. It is different when you curl in a big arena like that. Most of the curling clubs you're ever in. In the U.S. or anywhere in the country, basically, there's the house and then there's a wall right behind it. And now you come out to these arenas where there's a house and there's 500 seats or 1,000 seats behind it. So the depth perception is off a little bit. So we were there three months prior to the Paras and got used to that situation and leading up to the Paralympics and trying to warn my, warn, for lack of a better term, my teammates about the crowds. And this is the Paralympic Games, a little bit bigger situation. But the arena was incredible. The the volunteers there were incredible. The ice was incredible. The food, I mean, everything about it. We were, it was just an A1 situation and treated, you know, incredibly. So, and I got to say, curling, the spectators knew that sport and yes. were just going crazy throughout the games. When you weren't playing China, was it hard to block <laughs> out the noise? <laughs> Even if you were playing China, I mean, was it hard to block out the noise of those fans? Because they really got into it. Yeah. Personally, for me, no. It's it's easy for me, and I hope to, I can say the same for my teammates and any curler at this level. When you're out there, you don't see the crowd. You don't hear the crowd. I mean, you got to acknowledge it. It's part of life and all that. But you don't let it get to you. You don't acknowledge it. You don't – or you do acknowledge it. You don't hear it. So 
Yeah, it was totally different when we were playing China because it was crazy, loud and screaming, which is I love. It pumps me up. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to the shot making, you know, it's just me and the broom. Uh, when we weren't playing China, it was like I heard on a broadcast, it was like a library in there, you know, the Beijing <laughs> library. So, But it was funny because when we were in Pyeongchang, they bust in a bunch of kids for a couple games. So there's 4,000 kids in there, and they had no idea what curling was. So we were throwing shots like we would throw a guard in front of the house. And you could hear them go, oh, and then, oh, because it falls short of the house. So they think that we had to hit the house every time. So that we're, we're laughing about that. But, yeah, no, the Chinese – the Chinese crowd was a little bit more knowledgeable about the game, so we didn't get much of that. But it's always always a blast doing it. But how was it listening to the Chinese team? Uh, did, you, did you hear me growl? Uh, <laughs> it's it's okay. You know what? It's they the second the stone is off the stick, they're screaming and yelling. I, don't, I wish I knew. I, I mean, I got to learn. I wish I knew what they were saying. I don't know if they're. I don't know what they're doing. But they. That's what the way they play. They. They're loud. They come out, and maybe it's a form of intimidation, and try to get to the younger and experienced teams off their game. But it's yeah, it was. It's always interesting coming home and hearing my friends and everybody watching. Like, man, what's wrong with those Chinese guys? And that's annoying, or that's great. And it's just, it's not part of our sport as far as the the no sweeping. But yeah, you know, they they do what they do, and it is what it is, and it's all good. Part of the game. Well, it was interesting to see wheelchair curling in person and compare that to the stand-up curling that we saw just before that and see skips or throwers yelling at the stone like it was going to sweep itself right <laughs> right like that's why i wonder what what the heck are they yelling at you know it's, the, the thing doesn't have ears but i i mean we talked to it too and the funniest one of the things you know i'm being paralyzed and there's some amputees out there one of the things if it's short you're yelling get some legs get some legs <laughs> You know, and I said that this past week, we did a camp out in Colorado this past week with uh, a bunch of athletes. And there's a couple of WMPTs in there. And, and one of the volunteers, I'm like, get some legs, get some legs. And the volunteer was like, you sure you want to say that with these you know, athletes you got here? I'm like, they understand they're athletes. So, but yeah, the able bodies, they're yelling, the Chinese are yelling. We talk a little bit to it, but not as much. So yeah, it's a, it's a totally different game, but yeah, it's amazing. It's almost like you hope there's like a little door inside stone that's going to pop open <laughs> when you yell and a little broom comes out and starts sweeping yeah. in front of it or the, or the driver or the stone's going to pop out I'm like, yeah, I got right. you. yeah we'll go a little bit further or something but it's the same i mean i'm when i'm watching games at home you know i'm watching celtics last night i'm yelling at the tv you know like they can hear me but you still gotta yell right i mean you're still into it it's all good <laughs> we thought it was great how the pointing was still done with a broom so when the skip is directing where the stone should be thrown to. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're still using a broom to point, but that's the only time the broom comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm holding the broom for Matt or something. Throws it. Yeah, I want it as it's coming on the ice. Yeah, we're going to put it right here. Oh, wait a minute. We don't have any sweepers. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I can throw the broom into the crowd and the stones are going to stone in the same spot. So, yeah, it is, it's, it's pretty weird. But So is that standard to use the broom or is that some kind of – like how did that – I mean, not that you necessarily know how that developed, but is that, could you use something else? Well, the only reason we use the broom is that's what we're aiming at. The bright yellow or orange brush on the broom, that, that's a normal broom that able bodies use to sweep with. We just use it just for, for target. And that's all we're, th and that's all it's used for. So anything above and beyond that is putting on a show or just bad, just habits, just watching able bodies and picking up stuff and yeah, so that's – and a lot of us do play with able-bodied curlers in, in the normal, regular season. I'm the, I'm the only wheelchair curler in my club. I believe Matt is and, and probably a couple of the others too. So we're playing with able-bodies all the time. So when we're calling shots and we're skipping, we're, we're using that broom just like the able-bodies do. So it's just a force. It's just a habit. And then, like you said, the door pops open and the driver comes out. It's like, all right, I'll put it right there for you. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yep. We got lots of questions about the ice at curling. Okay. Because Beijing was so dry and technicians seemed like they were really struggling with all the humidifiers going. But you said the ice was good. Was it very different than, say, ice here in, in New England? Well, anytime you get on world championship ice, I mean, they're the best ice makers in the world. Uh, so anytime you get on ice like that, you can expect it to be pretty dang good. And I know there were some issues with the Olympics just two weeks prior and they, I don't think it was the same ice guys that were for us, the Paralympics, but they passed the information along. 
And I believe they brought in more dehumidifiers for our games. So there were some issues, but they did their best to fix them. The ice was incredible. It's, uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to play an ice like that compared to our local clubs. We're getting there. We've got incredible, incredible ice technicians in the United States, and they're traveling around to different clubs and helping out the local icemen to make their ice better, basically. That's all there is to it. Because you get on some bad ice, and it's no fun. There's no fun occurring on that at all. You know, I have no idea where the stone's going, and it's slow, and it's throwing my shoulder out. i got to get surgery afterwards, and yada, yada. So uh, that ice, I thought it was fantastic. I, I didn't hear many complaints about it. There wasn't any normally normal on club ice or wherever you are in the country. There's some peaks and valleys to the ice. There's some runs in it. There's some, you know, slow spots. No, not in Beijing. That was, it was beautiful ice, and it played great. And, and again, once it comes, we're all on the same ice. So whether you want to complain about it or not, all 11 teams were on the same ice, and one of them won a gold medal, and one of them came in last place. But we're all on the same ice, so we really can't complain about it. But it is amazing what they can do with that stuff. It's so much fun playing on that ice. So speaking of other teams, right before the tournament started, it was announced that Russia would not be allowed to compete. And the RPC was one of the teams in your tournament. And then all of a sudden, your tournament is is quite altered. So... How did you get that news, and how did that affect what you guys were doing? Yeah, we we going into the going into the Paralympics, we heard other countries might have a problem with Russia being there. Personally, us five on the ice and our coaching staff, we, we want to go out and play the best. We want to. It doesn't matter who we're playing, and Russia is one of the best in the world, without a doubt. So, you know, we didn't have any boycott issues, or I mean, we're not going to play you, or something. Just go out there and go out there and play. Now that might rub some people in our country the wrong way, you know, with what's going on. But that's that was just our our focus was winning games going in. And we got there and we we heard that Russia was coming. Okay. Right, we got them what fifth game or so. That's fine. They're on our schedule. And then the announcement came out from the IPC that said we're gonna allow them to compete, but they can't compete on their own flag. They can't play the anthem. There's some other things in there. Okay, no problem. And then what, eight, ten, eleven hours later, they came down again and said, No, we're gonna we're gonna ban them from the games. And it's, it's, it's difficult because we know curling is such a close sport and all the other countries we compete against are we're friends with everybody and we're cordial with everybody. And, and, and that's including Russia. So the, the skip of the Russian team speaks broken English. The other ones don't speak much English, but we saw them in that 11 hours there when they were ready to compete. We, we saw them in the village, you know, Hey, you know, look forward to it and joking around with them. And then it, the announcement came down to abandoning them and, you know, I saw them a couple hours after that. It was just, it was just tough. They just want to play. They just want to play. So, you know, there was some tears shed, to be honest with you. It was, it was emotional. And those poor five curlers, they didn't deserve that. We heard, we heard a story about a Ukrainian skier from a delegation, unfortunately, in the, in the bombings or something, lost his life and his family or something. And, you know, it was just a lot of, a lot of stuff. It didn't affect us much. The pool went from 12 teams to 11 teams. The games didn't count. I know a couple other countries definitely were saying we're going to forfeit and Russia can have the win. That wasn't us for sure. We were playing and we were we were just playing. We we're playing the stones. And when you get on the ice, and that's one beautiful thing about curling is that when you get on the ice, you're playing the stones and you're playing the ice. You're not playing the other team. You're not playing the Russias or the Koreas or the Norways, whatever. You're playing the stones in the ice. So, and that that's what we had going into that. So when they came down, it was unfortunate. You hate to see that. They've been. They've been working extremely hard, like we all have been, to get to this point to represent their country. And for them to get banned, it was it was unfortunate. So, it, it, but as far as the team goes, it really didn't affect us much as far as the play. And it was just unfortunate that it happened. Unfortunate situation in the world. It's awful. I just wish the leaders of our countries, all countries around the world, would come to the games, Olympics, Paralympics, and see the see the sport. And see us competing against each other and see us laughing afterwards and congratulating each other and, and giving it all and as amateur athletes. I just wish that's the way the world was run. But we know that's not the case and that's unfortunate. Did you have any sense in that 10, 11 hours between the first announcement and the second announcement by the IPC that something was going to happen? Because on our side, we heard that in the villages, the situation just was escalating. And that's why the second decision was made to ban them. But I mean, your village would only have had sled hockey and curling. So did you have any sense of what was or how did they communicate everything to you? We heard through USA Curling and we heard stories that we, you know, the people in the village were feeling endangered because Russia was there. Not, I, and I can speak for my team. 
I can't speak for other teams. I can't speak for sled hockey. But it was just, like you said, just curling and sled hockey. The other villages, I'm not sure what was going on. But I personally didn't feel any sense of danger at all. Uh, I wasn't threatened that Russia was there at all. Uh, I don't think the rest of my team was. I can't say for sure, but I, I don't I don't think so. And we just found out from USA Curling. It came down both announcements. USA Curling does a great job of informing all of our athletes of what's going on in the world and the situation we're in. And the first announcement came down from USA Curling to the IPCs and allow them to compete. All right, cool. Another game, another opportunity to play. And then that 10, 11, you know, 12 hours later, he came down and said, oh, they, you know, they banned him. It was kind of my, my window in the village was overlooking the Russian building, you know, and all the Russian flags, all the buildings were decorated with the country's flags and all that, which they should be, which pride. And then the announcement came down that they, they're banning them in like in a matter of minutes, maybe it might've happened just overnight. All the signage was down. I mean, you couldn't tell from a hole in the wall, you know, who was in that building and they were gone. It was like the, the, the dead of the night. It was like a stealth operation. So, it's again, it's unfortunate that it happened to them. It happened to anybody. But I personally never felt any any fear of when they were there and when they weren't there, of any danger to my life or anything, anything more than traveling to any other country in the world and competing. Beijing was, it was an incredible place, an incredible host to the games. And the opening ceremonies, Andrew Parsons, I believe is the head of the IPC, gave a great speech. Rumor has it back in the States or somewhere, they didn't hear it all. And supposedly there was a malfunction. No, <laughs> and, he did. He misspoke oh, because oh, okay. we were there and you could see they had his speech also on the Jumbotron. And he, yep. it yeah. said, it said Republic of China on the Jumbotron and he forgot the Republic part or, or uh, the peoples, the people. Peoples. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he messed okay. up. He did mess up. And it was, right, right. it was, it was a slip. It was, not, <laughs> it was, it was a little scary. <laughs> but I thought that was a great speech. You know, oh yeah. He, he, he talked about the athletes and giving it all and do our best to get through this. And, you know, and I thought it was a great speech, but yeah, it was just an unfortunate situation, but Competing against the best in the world, incredible, incredible experience. Okay, so let's talk about your play. How did yeah. you? How, how, okay, why are you yeah. groaning? I'm mad. I'm, I'm pissed off. I mean, I should have a medal around my neck right now. We ended up five and five, fifth place, which is incredible. We were 12th in Pyeongchang. We were awful in Pyeongchang, two and nine, worst team in the world. And we battled the last two and a half years or so. There's some incredible sponsors, Toyota, Columbia, stepping up, some small ones, just helping us out. And we started off slow in a tournament. We, we finished strong. We were one game out of medal contention. And six and four, we're playing for a medal. Five and five, we're fifth place, and we get to watch. So, yeah, I'm mad. And I, I'm it, it, every day, every day I think about that, and it's driving me. And I'm just mad. I'm not mad at my teammates. I'm not mad at my program. I'm not at myself. I'm just, I'm just mad that we put in all that work and we, you know, come up fifth. And I know I'm wired differently than normal people. Being a Paralympian, an Olympian, you gotta be. And I am fired up and I think about it every day and it's driving me every day to get better. So I'm, I'm sick of coming in fourth and fifth and sixth place in the world. And I wanna be on that medal stand. So it was an incredible experience, incredible curling, a lot of great shots, a lot of terrible shots, a lot of great calls, a lot of terrible calls. So a little bit of everything, but until, until we get on the podium, I'm not gonna talk about it with a smile. Because it's still a lot of work to be done. Again, the people, our support is incredible. The the proof is in the pudding. China, you know, big Pyeongchang. We were twelfth, now we're fifth. So we're getting there. We're getting there, but we still got some work to do, and it's 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 driving me every day <laughs> to get better. Okay, so it, it says it's driving you, and and you think about it every day. But what's the line between replaying mistakes in your head? and using it as motivation, to paralyze you and using it as motivation. Right. Well, in my philosophy, and when I, when I speak to people around the, the country about this, I, I stress this is very important. In life, in sport, in anything, there's winning and there's learning. There is no losing. And that's important to me. Every, being a coach, you know, I coached basketball for 20 years. Being a teacher, I taught seventh grade math for 20 years. And now I'm an elite level curl. I'm a professional athlete curling as professional as you be, being, being a curler. But, but we did a lot of learning. We did a lot of learning in Pyeongchang. I mean, that's all we did was learn in Pyeongchang because we were two and nine. But this year, again, we're getting better and better. So it's not paralyzing me at all. It is driving me, like, like I said already, 
to, to learn and get better and watch the game film and talk to other curlers, able-bodied curlers in our country. Some of the best, the John Schusters, are, are coming out and, and talking and say, hey, Steve, you know, I want to sit down with you and, and go through this end or talk about this game and you know what maybe you could have done better. That's huge. That's huge. That's a learning opportunity. So to me, every opportunity we get when I'm coaching, when I'm curling, when I'm playing, whatever, every opportunity with my kids, it's a learning opportunity. And so five and five, five losses, but, you know, five opportunities to get better and learn from it. So that's what drives me every day, every day to get better. And I talk about one in my book and my speaking moments. Just get 1% better today. Just get 1%. That's how you do it. It's not a lot. Just get 1% better in something. And over the course of weeks or months or so, you're going to be a lot better at it. So we take the losses, we learn from them, and we keep on moving, and we get better and don't make the same mistakes, right? That's the definition of insanity. Keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Nah, not going to happen. So I changed my diet. I changed my meditation. I changed my sleep. I changed my CPAP machine. Just tweaking things and just keep on getting better and better. Though, were you able to enjoy some of the shots that you made in Beijing? Because some of them were just... So much fun as a fan to watch. There'd be a triple takeout or just that perfect sitting it right where you wanted it. Are you able to enjoy that? Yes. Well, without a doubt. Yeah. And there's some shots. I made a shot against Korea in the eighth and a little run back to take out a stone that was buried. That saved the game for us. I can honestly say that if I didn't make that, there's a good chance we lose that game. We end up four and six and in seventh or eighth place. So I made that shot. I mean, there was many shots before that that my teammates made too. But when it comes down to it in the eighth end, you got to make it. So that's that's the one shot that I always go back to. So, yeah, there was there was many shots myself and my teammates made throughout the week that, yeah, you don't you don't forget. And it's always always puts a smile on my face to go back and think about it and put yourself in that situation again where you're wearing the colors of the USA and you're representing the best country in the world, the greatest country in the world on the grandest stage of athletics. And you pull off a shot that you years ago had no idea what it was, nonetheless could even think about making. And you make it, it's just an incredible, incredible feeling and something that you lock into your brain. Positive imprints. You always got to have positive imprints in your mind and positive thoughts and positive whatever. Just keep it positive in your mind. So get the negative out and let that go. Learn from it and just reload it with positive, positive, positive. Do you go back and look at the tape and go, oh, this shot didn't work because the angle was this far off or the 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 weight behind it was so far off. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And basically with the sport of curling, there's there's two things. There's the amount of ice you take with the broom and how, how heavy you throw the stone. Uh, that's basically it. So usually every miss, actually definitely every miss, is either one or both mistakes. Too much broom and too much weight, you flash right by it. Too little broom and too little weight, you come up short. So, yeah, looking at We try not to nitpick with every shot, but there's some important ends. That sixth end against Sweden, uh, we played them. We gave up a five-ender, and that was a game. And Sweden's one of the best teams in the world, and they've done an incredible job coming back in, in every every bond spiel or tournament they play in. They're one of the best. So we strive to beat them, of course. We gave up five and a sixth. We were right there with them, right there. We were beating them. I think we were up two at the time. We gave up five because we got kind of locked in and, and throwing the wrong shot after a shot after shot. So for the ends – Typically, are the ones where we watch, and we, and we know what ends are bad. We got them written down. We got notebooks and stuff, so we got notes on all the games, and so we just go through go through those and learn from them. That's a lot of stuff we do on our off ice. We have meetings every week, so when we kick it on the ice together, you know, we do all this stuff and go through scenarios and replay them and make them better for next time because you're going to see them again. Sport of curling, you're always going to see those shots again. Did you find that your dry firing, which we talked about in the last episode? How, how did that help you? Did that make a huge a difference in it how did, you performed? Yeah, yeah it did. And it always does. It did and it always does. It's amazing how you can just practice something mentally over and over and over again. And then when you get to the point where you have to perform it, it's, it's automatic. So, yes, that, that is a huge part of my preparation. I still do it every day now. We have to, you know, U.S. team trials coming up next week in Colorado. And we have a set of shots, you know stones are going to put up our coach is going to put up stones in a certain position and we got to come through the port or we got to take the stone out and stick and hit or whatever it might be so i literally and I, we know the shots coming up so i literally go through all those every day in my, my living room with my stick in my hand and dry fire and go through all those so when i get on the ice next week i've already seen that shot for the last three weeks every day yeah but it is it is amazing how the mind works and if and it's a proven, it's a proven, and I think it's scientifically proven that the more you, the more you do it and mentally prepare, the better you're going to be at something. So I, I encourage that highly. 
one thing I noticed was that there was some talking between teams. Oh, yeah. I mean, you obviously all know each other, but yeah. is it trash talking going on on the ice? It, no, no, it's not. And and that's what's beautiful about the sport. And again, I go back to last week where we had a couple sled hockey players out there. We had Rico Roman and uh, Travis Dodson from the sled hockey team. Gold, you know, three-time gold medalist, five. They're incredible. And they're trash talking on the ice and hockey for that. They got picks <laughs> on the end of their sticks. They're trash talking. And, they, and they, they admit it. I mean, that's what you do in hockey. But so one of the very first things we had to teach them, it was funny because the volunteers at Denver Curling Club, you know, said, make sure you teach these guys etiquette. And of course we're going to. The very, one of the first, very first things we teach them off the ice is this is a, a gentleman. This is a, a, a woman's sport. This is, there's rules here and you don't trash talk. And so no, there's really no trash talking. It's, it's more of like talking to Mark Hardison from Canada or something like, come on, Mark, can you please miss a shot or something like that? He's the best curler in the world right now, in my eyes. And uh, somebody, somebody we strive to. We stop it, Mark. Not catch it off. Can you please miss your shot? So in that sense, that it is. And he smiles, and we laugh about. It. But yeah, that's you know, great shot. Hey, that's that's incredible, incredible shot. Nice job. That's that's part of the sport, and that's one of the many many things I love about it is you pushing each other, you pushing yourself, you pushing your teammates, you pushing your opponents. Hey, I, I want to play against the best. So I want these guys to make me shots. So I got to step my game up and make the next one even better. So yeah, that's that's the way that works. That's how it looked, and it was yeah. a lot of fun to watch. There was one game, and I. I'm sorry, I can't remember which one it was, where it looked like you apologized for making a shot. That happens. <laughs> where you're just like, I should not have been able yeah. to do that. And it ended up winning the end and, mm -hmm. and winning the game. Like, you guys totally beat us this whole match, except for that one shot I just made. I got goosebumps right now just thinking about it. That, that, that happens. And it's usually a missed shot. It's usually not the shot you called for. You never apologize for the shot you call for. You're a triple run back, take out. You got to end up in the stands and on a bus or something. You nail that one. No, you don't apologize for that. But it's the it's the little takeout. We just want to take out. But then you roll behind three guards and you're buried in this eighth end. My bad. Sorry about that. And we all know. We're all elite crows. We all know when the shot was called. And you get a little, we call it a wiki whack or something. And stone ends up buried behind like 34 stones or something, which isn't possible. But we think it is. Yeah, you. my bad. Sorry about that. And it and it, when it happens to you, it's like, come on, are you serious? Like, come on, like, come on. And when they apologize, it doesn't make you feel any better. But yeah, that's, it is what it is. Yep. The other thing I noticed was that you were relentlessly positive, even when stuff was not looking good. And there were some games that were just really tough for the U.S. But <laughs> yeah. we, we both noticed how you just stayed super positive. How natural was that? Because you're very positive when you talk to us. But, you know, when things are not going your way as a team, it can be easy to get down. But that seemed to be your role to be the, like the cheerleader for the team. Yeah, and I appreciate you acknowledging that. And I appreciate you saying something. I take a lot of pride in that. And that's important to me. That's in everything I do. Coaching my 13-year-old's uh, AAU tournament this weekend. We went 0-4. We lost every game by – well, we were too close. We lost other games by 30 or 40 points. So – there's other people watching and there's other people that, that you're, you're affecting. And two quick stories. One, Lindsay Vaughn, American skier, incredible woman, back in Pyeongchang. She did an interview with Mike Tirico before she went over. And she said, listen, we all want to win. We're all Olympic athletes. We all want to win. But we all can't win. And it's more important to be a good person and a good teammate and a good leader and to show all the millions of people watching at home that you're, you're a good person. And I wrote that down on, my, on, my, on, a, on a three by five card parts of that and I put it on my wall in Pyeongchang and I looked at it every day probably 40 times a day and I made sure when I when I was on the ice I had a smile on my face and I was positive and I was pushing my teammates and I was congratulating my opponents and all that so that that taught me something there because before I went over to Pyeongchang I'm like wait a minute I'm a Paralympian if I don't win a medal here life's going to be hell for myself and everybody around me and that's not fair and that's not fair you got so much support and love around me so basically but I've been that way my entire life and another quick we were in Scotland probably six years ago, and our team was doing awful. And I was I was a jerk on the ice. I was a jerk. I was a terrible leader. I was a terrible teammate. And Mark DiPerno, who was our program director, called me from the States. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm in Scotland, and my phone rings, and it's Mark. And he's like, Steve, what are you doing? He, I mean, it got all the way back to him in an hour. He's like, what are you doing? He said, your teammates look up to you. You are the leader of this team. There's people watching you. And, in, and if you're going to act like that, you're no good to us. We don't want you around. So that that – that was important to me to get a little, you know, kick in the butt to be like, hey, you know, 
it doesn't matter. It's it's yeah, we all want to win. And again, go back to Lindsay's words. We all want to win, but you know, the Paralympics, the grandest stage in the world to go out and there's millions of people watching. Got to stay positive. And as hard as it is at times, I'm not going to lie. I get back to the locker room and <laughs> I'm looking for the first thing to break. I'll tell you that right now. And my teammates know that. But, you know, when you're out there and, and it's just because when you go south, everything goes south in this sport. Everything. And as much as an individual sport it is, the next person's going to miss and the next person's going to miss. So, yeah, I appreciate acknowledging that. And that's important to me to, to stay positive no matter what's going on in my life. I'm, again, I was just in there fixing a the shower, and the, my wife didn't turn the water off. And I turned, oh, I got soaked. I'm sitting here, I'm soaked right now talking to you. But hey, hey, it's a warm day out. At least it's not 20 below, and I'm not freezing here. It's a warm day, so it's all good. So yeah, and it's staying positive in life and everything you do, it's important. Important. You can get through a lot of stuff when you're positive. Games, life, whatever it might be. So, and again, thank you for acknowledging that. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm out there wearing red, white, and blue, and I'm in Beijing, China at the Paralympic Games, playing a sport that I love. And it brings tears to my eyes thinking about it. And that's what it's about. That's what it's that's what it's about. Representing your country and doing it with pride and joy and love and keep doing it. We would have waited for you to change your shirt, Steve. No, it's all good. It's dry now. It's dry. It's like 80 degrees in Connecticut. It's all dry. Yeah. So some cool moments not related to playing. Because we were in Beijing, we were in a bubble, we couldn't really go around town, but you got to be in the village with all the hockey players, and I know you went to the gold medal hockey game because yeah. we saw you there. We, yeah. we waved, you couldn't tell we were waving okay. in right. our, little, our little bubble, yeah. but what are some fun things that happened elsewhere? Well, the I mean, obviously these ceremonies, the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies, opening ceremonies, again, I got goosebumps, so when you... You come out, the American flag is five feet in front of me, carried and wavering and come out in front of, I think, what, 30,000 people. They were there in a stadium that holds 80. And to be with those athletes and just know that you represent your country is absolutely amazing. Closing ceremonies, kind of less formal than opening ceremonies. So that was amazing. The one thing about the opening ceremonies, though, a lot of we only had about 35 of us in the contingent because there was a lot of, of skiing events the next day. So the skiers didn't come to the ceremonies, which... To me, is a bummer. I think they need to change that. I think they need to have the ceremonies, day off, and then competition starts. Uh, I don't know how logistically that'll work, but to not march in, especially somebody that was a first-time Olympian or Paralympian, and to be able to not march in it is a bummer. But the ceremonies are incredible. The, the people, the people of China, and the volunteers, I think it was 9,000 volunteers there, would bend over backwards for you to walk a mile to get you a bottle of water. And it just, it's incredible. Um we got out of the bubble and went to the hotel, I believe. might have been the same hotel we were at. We had Peking duck for dinner, the, the Chinese food and the, the setup and the difference. That was a great time. So, and again, the gold medal game, like you mentioned, sled hockey. As you, hopefully, you probably heard me before you saw me because I know I'm a loud mouth. And, you know, we were there in our wool hats and the, the plaid vests and sleeveless and representing like they came to our game. You know, they came to one of our curling matches and, and represented. So we had to pay it back. Incredible time. Incredible time, and I, to be honest with you, I don't know. Minus the crowds at the game, minus I don't know if you know COVID had that much effect on it. I don't know if the bubbles had that much effect on it. What would what would have been different? Yeah, there would have been four thousand in the stands watching us play instead of a thousand. Yeah, no big deal. Maybe the stadium for the ceremonies would be packed, but the coverage was incredible. The media coverage was absolutely incredible. Delta flying us over there. You know, I had a suite on a plane. I had walls in my room on a plane and a big screen TV and my chair laid flat for 13. I brought my CPAP on a plane and I passed out for eight, nine hours. It was amazing. Delta and again, Toyota and Columbia. Just incredible, incredible time. And and I got to say, out of the four ceremonies, because I got to see all of them in person, uh, we would agree the closing ceremonies of the Paralympics was the best out of all four of them. It was so beautiful and so well done. So it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. And I agree on uh, the two, the opening versus is closing, definitely the closing. Yeah. But being there to see all four, that must've been incredible. Yep. You got a lot of hats. Yeah, <laughs> <A lot of laughs> we got a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was I mean, gonna say, how's that. your swag? What kind of swag oh, did I, you get? Oh, what? what? I mean, what kind of swag didn't I get? I mean, I come back and I got. I still. I mean, it's amazing. I get four large duffel bags of. I get it's fine, incredible polo, Ralph Lauren, Nike, 
head to toe of everything. And I'm, st- I'm still wearing stuff from Pyeongchang. And I still have stuff in plastic from Beijing. I have a large duffel bag. I haven't opened yet. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible and very proud to, to wear it all. Even the funky stuff. <laughs> Wait, what like is funky? Hat. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, what's funky? funky? Yeah, funky is like the, the, the wool hat. Or the hunt, I don't know what it's called. And, you know, that. And there's some funky sweatshirts. And looks like American flags, you know, threw up on it. But it's amazing. And stuff like, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, you definitely, you go out in public and you're wearing stars and stripes. And you know, people, hey, oh, that's, that's, and then they see the, you know, Paralympic patch on something or the Team USA. Oh, and it's a conversation starter. And they love to hear the stories of all of us. And I love telling it. So now we're going into another quad. How much did Pyeongchang fuel this experience? How much is this, and maybe even Pyeongchang piggybacking on it, does that fuel you for the next quad? Because it's a long four years now. It is. And uh, Pyeongchang fueled me big time for Beijing. There was no holding me back for Beijing. And when I started this journey eight years ago, I told myself I'd like to get three Paralympic Games in. You know, that, that would make me the most decorated U.S. Paralympic curler in the history of our country. So I'm on my way. We got trials next week, and I, I know I'm going to go out there and nail it. So I'm on my way. But Pyeongchang fueled me big time for Beijing. Right now, it's not as much, to be honest with you. There needs to be some changes with our team and our curling and our tag, whatever the tag. Again, I'm sick of coming in fourth and fifth place. And we've done that now for two and a half years or so. To me, that's not good enough. To the USOPC, that's not good enough. Their job is to win medals. And if we're not winning medals, then we, there's always room for improvement. So there's got to be some tweaking done. If that tweaking is done, I'm all in 100% for Cortina in 26. If not, I got to seriously consider if I want to do this again for four years. Now, I'm in for this year for another world championship. But do I want to go through this for another four years? The sacrifices, the being away. I'm fortunate today's my wife's birthday. And I'm fortunate to be home for it. But years past, I wasn't. My, you know, my kids, uh, anniversaries, party. I mean, it's there's a lot of sacrifices that... Olympians and Paralympians do for their sport. So as long as there's some tweaks made and a little bit of changes, then I'm all in and we'll, we'll, we'll nail it in Cortina and give it a, one more try. If not, then I need to seriously consider whether or not it's worth the heartaches and the sacrifices that come along with what we do. One of the things that we both noticed was you have to have a woman on the ice, but the teams always just have one woman on the ice. So how are women coming in? You see that expanding. Yes. Well, it's got to be mixed gender. So it's not necessarily just one woman. It's got to be mixed gender. So it could be three men, three women and one male, two and two, three and whatever it might be. The woman, I think right now in our country, I think everywhere, actually, it, it's kind of a holding pattern right now. There's some countries that only have one female curler. And that's difficult. I know, like Slovakia, one of Monica's is a sweetheart. I believe she's the only female curler in the country. So they're, I think they're, they're alternate was actually a ping pong player from the summer games that they brought that curled in case they need to use her. So if you travel with four males and one female or four females and one male, and if something happens to that one, then you forfeit games. So teams usually try to travel with three and two either way, but it's difficult again for some countries. In the U.S., we've kind of hit a holding pattern ourselves. We're trying to get some younger generation women into it. I had an incredible 23-year-old basketball player last week out in Colorado who was just awesome to work with. And she's a basketball player, so I'm trying to sell her on it. You think when you're 60 years old, think back. You could be the most decorated Paralympic woman athlete ever in history. And her eyes just got big. So we're always trying to go to sport, but the women are just as important in the sport as males. And again, it could be three women and one male out there. And and if that happens in the U.S., and that's so be it. I want to put the best team out there. And if I'm the only male on the team and there's four women, then I'm going to do my part to win that medal for our country. So, But I, I think to answer your question right now, I think all the countries are kind of struggling a little bit to find those female athletes and uh, to continue on and grow the sport. And I, it's not going to ever – I don't think it'll ever get to the point where countries can't compete because of it. They'll find a way. Like I think it was, it was Slovakia found a way or it might have been Latvia, whatever. But – yeah, it's difficult to find curlers, especially young curlers, because all these young, you know, people that newly injured or whatnot want to go play the glitter sports. They want to play basketball and track and all that. So curling is not that, you know, showmanship yet. So it's difficult to recruit. The women are very, very important, and you need to keep on recruiting as many people as possible, male, women, whatever it might be. Well, Steve, you got to wear face paint, glitter, make it fun. <laughs> 
We need, yeah, we need something, right? Tutus out there or something. I don't know. Uh, bells and whistles and, ah, yeah, something. We got to come up with something. We're working on that. Off the air, the three of us will talk. We'll work on that. We'll get that All right. All right. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. It was so much fun to see you compete in person. Definitely. I appreciate your time. And uh, right. as always, we can look forward to do this again. Thank you so much, Steve. You can find Steve at steveempt.com. On Facebook, he is steven.empt. Instagram, he is steven.empt. And LinkedIn, he is steve-empt. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. So fun to hear the perspective of all those matches that we watched. It really is. Being there and seeing the stuff that happens when the camera is not on them is really important especially in curling, I felt. I almost want to go back, and I don't know if it's still available, to watch some of the more memorable matches, how they were aired. I wish I'd almost taken more notes, and now I know for next time that when I'm watching something in person, take so many notes and then go back and compare the broadcast to it to really see what the differences are between what we see versus what people see at home. Or if we're able to watch one in person and one on the TV at the same time. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. To really compare. We did a little bit of that in, in Tokyo and, and, and to the Beijing Olympics, but really not focused on that. And that I want to do next time around. Well, maybe that will be some of my summer project because virtually all of the things that have been taped for me are still on our DVR from the Olympics. So there you go. We know these things. We'll just keep Do you find yourself watching any of that stuff and remembering being in the space? Sometimes. I mean, I think about things and I can put myself there, feel that I try to remember how cold it is and not that that's pleasant, but it's just like it's so cold it doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't resonate very well. And, and it's it's also interesting when you're talking with someone. I think we felt this with Rob when we were talking before and after the interview, where it's just you had this instant camaraderie with people who were there. And in a way that you don't have, and, and this happens in, in various special events or conferences or whatever you go to, you have this built-in camaraderie that's a lot of fun. I feel like and my time in Beijing was was half of what, what yours was, but it feels like this little bubble that almost didn't happen, like almost wasn't a part of my real life mm -hmm. in a way. And I wonder if, one, if we get to go again, and as we get to go again, if that will continue to be, if, the, if being there is such this little bubble and not the COVID bubble, just you're going to these events, you're with a certain group of people, you're going to a certain place. It's not like visiting a city as a tourist. It's a completely different experience. But I do wonder if Paris will be different because you will have the, hopefully, knock on wood, still have the opportunity to see the tourist stuff if you've got the time because it will, you won't be in a closed loop or a bubble. Well, remember, without Paris, I'd still be on the mountain. So Paris is going to be the best <laughs> Olympics ever. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Paris 2024 Organizing Committee. You people are perfect. That sound means it's time for our history moment. And all year long, we were, are looking at Albertville 1992, as it is the 30th anniversary of those games. My turn for a story. So I, I decided to look at ice hockey. And ice hockey is probably going to be my version of your figure skating. There are probably a million stories. <laughs> but today I would just like to talk about Swedish referee Sven Erik Sold. From what I could find, Sold was born in 1956 and he turned 36 just before Albertville. And according to the New York Times, he is a celebrity in his small hometown of Gangnif because he is one of the most respected, or at least at the time, he was one of the most respected officials in Sweden's first division hockey league. He refed some group games, uh, and then he got his semifinal assignment, which was unified team versus USA. Oh, boy. So this is considered to be the rematch of the Miracle on Ice, because since 1980, USA did not do well in the 
Olympics. And so end of the first period, unified team is up two to one. USA ties it in the second period on a power play. And the, the, the fact that they were tied at the end of two periods was pretty amazing because they had been outshot 30 to 11. And the unified team had so much more control of the puck throughout the whole game. So the, this is a big deal that they're tied. In the third period, our friend Sven Eric calls five consecutive penalties against the United States. Oh, dear. A unified team scores three points in the third, two of them on power plays, and they win five to two. The other thing that we look at, shots on goal. Keep that in mind. Unified team, 55. Oh, no. To USA, 18. Oh. Right? Wow. But the USA is not happy. Apparently, they have been pretty rambunctious the whole Olympics. <laughs> is that your nice way of saying they were goons? Perhaps. I don't know. Because the, the quote I have from, it's either the New York Times or uh, Tampa Bay Tribune, I think. It, the Americans, who have rocked the Olympic community with rambunctious behavior all week long, didn't go quietly tonight. <laughs> wow. So, after the match is over, USA's captain, Clark Donatelli, decided to take out his frustration at Sven Eriksold, and he berated him in a ramp way after the game. Donatelli thinks that Sold is getting back at them from a game earlier in the tournament where the Americans were tied with Sweden 3-3 three to three in a match that deteriorated into rival players and coaches exchanging curses, shoves, and insults. And this happens after a brutally physical exhibition match between Sweden and the United States. So now pretty much their hockey relations are pretty bad for those two countries. So Donatelli thinks that Sold has part of the problem why the USA did so poorly, and he told the referee... <laughs> We'd gotten rid of his boys, and since he was the only damn Swede left on the th ice, that he'd decided to screw us Americans. Donatelli told the media, Oh no. We had to go out and kill five penalties in the last period. The NHL All-Stars couldn't do that. Sure, some of those might have been legitimate, but five? So, but they were rambunctious. Yeah, I know. I know. So this is a he said, he said kind of thing. Captain Donatelli later apologizes, saying, and this is one of those classic apologies. If I offended any fellow Americans back home, I'm sorry. Don't care if I offended the Swedes. Don't care if I offended the Russians. I want us to take the loss as men, not as a bunch of babies. You don't go to the Olympics to be a wuss. <laughs> Very true. Uh, while the U.S. wasn't thrilled with Sold's officiating, the officiating committee of the tournament thought differently, and they selected Sven Eric to be the ref for the final that was Unified Team versus Canada. Unified Team won that 3-1. to one. And it turned out that Sold was selected to referee one game in every round of the whole tournament, and honor afforded no other official. Sold himself has said that that semifinal game was the best game of his career. In a publication called Sporthelg, he said, the semifinal team between the Soviet Union, or OSS as they called it back then, and the USA in the 1992 Olympics is probably the best match I've done. I, then I really felt the buzz when the United States went and hit the walls because they would have had the Russians out in the corridor to fight. Before the match, he talked to both coaches, the three of us had a chat, and it was it was like an eight to nine minute chat. Then they finally agreed on the level of play, you know, and I think just what they're what we're going to call stuff and how we're going to call it. That took a while, but at least they got on the same page and everything was well. But even with everybody being on the same page, you still know that in the last 10 minutes, they're going to do anything to win. And you're all alone by yourself out there. After the match, both the coaches came and shook his hand, thanked him. Coaches are both happy. For him, it's a good grade. So that was great. And he got selected to be the finals judge. And the like the head of the officiating, or somebody came in, <clears throat> and they told him ahead of the time, you have free reign, feel the match. And he 
was able to judge at the level he wanted to judge and didn't have to poke around at every little tiny thing. So I'm looking quick at this roster of the American team from 1992. And I'm just going to say, this is a very Massachusetts heavy team. (laughs) So you have lived in Boston. I have lived in Boston. I have married into Boston. I am not surprised they were a little rambunctious. Welcome to Shook Flaston. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, who are our citizens of Shook Flaston, our very own country. Shooter Tim Sherry competed in the ISSF Grand Prix in Granada, Spain last week. He took the bronze in the men's individual small bar event and was part of two silver winning, two silver winning, two silver medal winning teams, the three-man air gun and the three-man small bar. And thank you to listener Meredith for that little tip. Speed skater Aaron Jackson has been named to the U.S. Speed Skating National Training Program. Race walker Evan Dunphy. What, this is I love it when Shook Flastani's collide. Evan Dunphy was on our sustainability expert Matthew Campelli's podcast. We'll have a link to that in the, the show notes. He talked about crafting your voice as an athlete climate activist. At activist. And then he also did a 10K race in Madrid. He placed 23rd. Did not think too much of his own performance, but hey, I think he did well. He was saying he, he didn't get to train much beforehand, so he's just getting back into the groove. So he kind of raced to force himself to train. So getting back in the the swing of things. And speaking of swinging, Michelle Carter is putting on a youth row girl sports confidence camp in Dallas on August 4th through the 6th. And another shooting update, McKenna Gear unfortunately got COVID and could not compete in the parachuting World Cup in France that's happening right now. And and we've got reports that some other Shuklostanis are injured. Decathlete Jordan Gray and canoeist Luca Jones are both recovering from injuries. Kelly Clace Chang and partner Betsy Flint will compete in the Beach Volleyball World Championships in Rome on June 10th through the 19th. And Curling's Team Schuster is going to stick around for another quad and make a run at 2026. Is this six or seven? Because I was going to say this is going to be six in 2026, right? Torino might have been his first. No, no, no. Yeah. Torino. Italy to Italy. There you go. Nice full circle. I love that. You know, if that happens, do you know how many stories we're going to hear about that? And I'm here for it. So last week, last week we talked about venue legacy, and then we got some news from Tokyo 2020 that there's issues with the legacy plans for its brand new Olympic Stadium. Which was not part of the venue legacy report, because that was too soon. But. Right. That, but, but Tokyo built so much for these Olympics. And the National Stadium was supposed to be privatized after the Games to reduce cost to taxpayers. But that project uh, has fallen far behind schedule, according to the Kyoto News, and is showing no sign of getting back on track. So, Is this a COVID-related issue, or is this a money-related issue, or we don't know yet? I think it's a we're-not-getting-stuff-done situation. Because the detailed plans about what was going to happen to the stadium could not be disclosed to interested businesses for security reasons during the games so that put out the privatization project and then since november they're in this phase of soliciting opinions from interested businesses but there's no plan yet so that's really tough and that does leave taxpayers on the hook for right now because the annual price tag for maintenance administration and large-scale repairs is $18.8 million a year, or 2.4 billion yen. I don't know why, but after a depressing Tokyo legacy discussion, moving over to Milan Cortina does does not uplift me at all, even though we are not talking about any building, no nothing whatsoever. This is actually good news. 
Well, I it's think. funny you say that because it has been met with a lot of controversy. So the International Skating Union has adopted new rules that we discussed uh, a couple months ago now uh, that will gradually raise the minimum age for competing on the senior and international level to 17. And that will be in time for Milan Cortina 2026. So the plans being it will be raised every year so that nobody who is currently competing at the senior level will be kicked out. So it'll be 16 this year and then 17 the following year. Yes, it will affect some 13 and 14 year olds who are planning to compete in 2026. Too bad. You need to grow up first before you compete in the Olympics. But some people are it's it's mixed reviews. Really? It is. You're seeing a lot of people say if they're good enough to compete, they should compete. And then you have Mariah Bell, who now is 25, who was competing in her first Olympics, saying, now we're going to make staying a competitive figure skater more of a career option. Yes. Because if girls can't compete until they're 17, you're not going to have these girls who haven't gone through puberty yet competing against women. True. Maybe coaches will go, let's perfect a smaller revolution jump versus going for the big jumps and hurting your body. Right. And we're going to have to see how this trickles down to does junior competition just become the Wild West of the crazy jumps and girls are burning out just as soon as they were before. And will this trickle down to the new score? We haven't seen the new scoring system yet from the ISU. So it's part of a larger discussion. But bottom line, at the very least, now girls competing at the Olympics and at the senior level have to abide by the same water rules as everybody else. You don't have that under 16 protected person like Camilla Valieva, so that we will avoid, we hope, that same controversy. Yes. And it's interesting that this proposal has been around for quite some time and has been batted down time and time again. But it did take the situation with Valieva to make change happen. And hopefully it'll be good change. I won't say I don't think it can't be not good because then the Wild Wild West thing you popped up said. But I always think of Alyssa Liu. Retired at 16. Right. And granted, I I don't mind people retiring that young in a sport that you have to start at like three or four or else you're not going to get to the top, supposedly. Don't know. But when she was 13 and winning national championships, when she could not compete at Worlds, doing these jumps and then she grew... And her skating wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't as good, but you could tell that her talent level or her abilities, suddenly she had to grow into her body. And I just think the transition to to a more adult body was very tough in trying to do the same level of stuff she was doing when she was a little girl. I mean, she's not the first female skater that goes away for a season, comes back, four inches taller, 20 pounds heavier, and can't jump anymore. I mean, we have been seeing this for the entire time I've been watching figure skating, 40 years, you know, where these little girls are doing these crazy things. They come back and all of a sudden they can't do them anymore because they didn't learn how to do them with a woman's body. Very different situation. And then the trauma, the psychological trauma and the physical trauma of having to relearn everything with this new body and what that does to them psychologically. And guess what that triggers? An eating disorder because you don't want to develop. So you starve yourself, delays development. So you've got this whole circle of physical and psychological difficulties when you've got girls competing at Worlds and they look like they're 12. And we all know what we're talking about. But you hit 17, these girls are going to be developed so that if they're competing at that level, They're competing with an adult body. It's women skating. It's not girls skating. There you go. And on that note, that will do it for this week. Let us know your thoughts on what Beijing television coverage was like and the wheelchair curling competition. You can get in touch with us through email at 
flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAMEIT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Oh, so next week is an important show because we're talking Nordic Combined with Annika Malasinski. And this is just ahead of the IOC's vote on whether or not Women's Nordic Combined will be in the Milan Cortina 2026 games. So be sure to tune in for that because we all have thoughts here. So (laughs) it's a great conversation with Annika and we can't wait to share it with you. So join us then. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.